Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Please note this podcast is not suitable for children. We have to find the reason why somebody is self harming. And usually it's not because he's canteen short or he's 20 minutes late for his visit. That's not the reason why somebody's doing this. So we have to find that. And that's what I want to work with. I want to work on settling people into prison. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, Edwina talks to the Tartan Con, former prisoner he chooses to keep his identity secret so that his voice rather than his past can be heard. I'm partial to a rant. I shake a bit. I talk about prisons, he states in his Twitter biog. Well, he's in the studio with Edwina now to talk about his efforts in early days in custody and reducing suicide rates within prisons here in the UK, among other topics he feels passionately about. So my name's the Tartan Con. It's a pseudonym that I use. I'm an ex-prisoner who served just under four years in jail in England. Am I allowed to ask what you went to prison for? It was white collar. I went to prison for perverting the course of justice, false accounting and theft. So I was sentenced in my absence to about seven and a half years in jail. And I did half of that. Right. And how long ago was that? I was released back in 2016. So quite fresh. Yeah. Uh, I was released on the 21st of January 2016 um, with £47.50 in my pocket and told to go home. Right. (laughs) And you're quite a passionate advocate um, for sort of work in prisons and trying to improve things. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing since you came out? So if I step back to when I was in jail, it was the bureaucracy of people coming into jail and not being taken care of properly. And that's something that I wanted to try and change. So when I decided to do what I do, it came about of I want to try and make a difference to what was going on inside the jails. I'm lucky, I'm one of the few people whose prison sentence worked for him. I left prison a damn sight better person and never entered it. Okay. So I think probably I went back to try and make sure that those who went after me got treated better than those who went before me. And why was your experience so good? And what sort of state did you go in? Can you sort of describe what that How did transformation, I into... if you like, if, if that's the right term to use? How was it so good for me? It gave me the time that I needed myself to destruct myself completely and build myself back up again. Prior going to jail, I was an egomaniacal, self-centered fool who thought the world owed him a living. And I slowly found out that when I went into jail that that wasn't the case. So I took the entire time in jail to deconstruct myself. It wasn't through courses. It wasn't through things like that. Those things weren't for me. I, I went through terrible times in jail. But I came out the other side, luckily. I had some very dark moments where I didn't think I was going to make it through the next day. And it was from that that I just felt that 
it was time that people realised what went on inside jails. Sorry, can I can I just stop you there because I'm really interested in the fact that you said you sort of didn't go to groups or programmes no. and so you did it alone? Yes. Probably like, not the best way to do it. Yeah, and I just wonder what that means. What that means is um, part of something that I live with has a side effect of chronic depression. So I went through that and I started thinking that I was not worthy to exist anymore. And it was through that that I started saying, okay, I am going to be released, I am going to get out of jail, and I am going to have to get on with my life. So I knew somewhere inside there was a decent person. I just kind of lost him for about 50 years of my life. Right. Yeah, the, the whole of yeah. my life. Um, and I decided that that was the time to, to take, the, take the time to sit and delve into myself. Um, for two years inside my sentence, I was working with a psychologist, so it wasn't 100% on my own, but it was up to me to try and change it. And I fully believe a lot of that is the case, where it's up to me to try and change the way that I was. Hmm. So I did. Did you have family supporting you in that? So I never had one visit for the entire time right. I was in jail. Um, my wife lived abroad. I didn't want, I decided I had brought enough shame on her and through my antics that it wouldn't have been right for her to make the visit, the flight, the six hours, the hotel stay, to turn up at the prison for two hours to go away again, whereas all I would have to do is walk basically 200 yards to a visits hall. Mm. People tend to forget that. I think prisoners, we tend to forget that. As, as prisoners, we forget that it takes a whole day for the family to come and see us. We walk 100 yards to the visits hall and then go back to our cell again. So I had it through letters. I had the support through letters. I was an avid writer of about 20 to 30 pages every single week. Right. I spent an inordinate amount of money on phones. I think when I left prison, one of the governors said to me I'd spent over £6,000 on phones uh, by calling home because I was calling abroad. So that's how I had it. And she kept telling me that there was a good person in there, that I just had lost him for a while. And that support kind of got me through. And the staff got me through. The prison staff got me through. The prison staff saved my life. Yeah. So that's how it got through. But it was a case of, okay, I need to do it. And it was a long, long, drawn-out process. Right. It wasn't something that I woke up one morning and went, Eureka, I'm now a fantastic <laughs> I'm person. Reformed. Yes, I'm reformed. <laughs> I'm rehabilitated. I yeah, know. exactly. I hate that I'm word. That's, no, it was until the day that I left prison. And I'm still a work in process. Yeah. But luckily enough now, I realise when there's triggers that are going to send me back to my old self of mentality, that I can say, okay, okay stop it. Yeah. Enough, get rid of the arrogance and just stop this and remember what you, know, what you were like before. So it wasn't through courses, though. I'm, yeah. I'm not one to sit in a group course and pour yeah. out my feelings. I'm Scottish, no. we don't do things like exactly. that. Exactly, and I don't mean this to sound rude at all, but you're a man as well, yeah. and we know that men... Um, definitely aren't as open as women sit in groups and sort of talk about things that have happened to them. It's just, you know, different makeup. It is a different makeup. I, yeah. I always say that Ben Nevis was, was invented by Scotsmen hiding their emotions under a carpet till it got so big we called it Ben Nevis. Right. We don't talk about things like that. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't. Yeah. I talked to myself out loud on a number of occasions. Yeah. Um, and I found my love of writing. I'd never written anything before and I was too busy to write. I couldn't do things like that. You know, that was the old me. Yeah. But I found my love of writing and my love of reading and my love of Oscar Wilde and all things like that um, that said, okay, you, you can actually be a better person. I interrupted you and you were going on to say um, when you came out, mm. then the work that you started doing. 
Um, so can you elaborate a bit more now on the work that you have been doing since yeah, it's, 2016? It's, it was really strange. I found a love of writing. So I started to write things and I wrote articles and I wanted to get my voice out there. And the reason I use a pseudonym is because I didn't want my previous history to be the topic of the conversation. I wanted what I was saying to be the topic of the conversation. So I wrote a lot of articles and I wrote one article of what I thought my utopian prison should be. And I sent it to an amazing individual called Ian Dunt, who runs the politics.co.uk website. And he published it. And I got a message from somebody um, who I think walks on water. And I don't mind naming him, his name is Wynne Jones. And Wynne wrote to me and he said, Dear Tartan Con, I don't know who you are, but please give me a call. And I didn't think anything of it. Who the heck's Wynne Jones? Forget it. A week later on, another one. Here's my phone number. And I said to him, so I called him and I said, yes. And he went, okay, don't tell me your name, but I need you to come and work for us. And I went, okay, so first clue, please, is who are you? And why do I need to come and work for you? <laughs> yeah. And he went, oh, I'm sorry. He said, I'm the custodial operations director for a company called Serco. And I went, okay, and? I had never heard of Serco before. Yeah. And he went, oh, we, we run five or six jails. He said, I want you to come and talk to my staff about your idea of a utopian prison. What prison should be like when you're there and what should it be like when you leave through the gate? And I said, okay, that's fine. I said, I'm happy to do that. I said, but I'd like to talk about your early days in custody process, which is something that's close to my heart because I had never had a parking ticket before I went to jail. And all of a sudden I was extradited from another country. I was sent into jail and I had no idea what to do. And he turned around to me and said, okay, then why don't you come and look at them all? So that was it, and that's how I started. To look at all the circle To look at all prisons. the circle jails. And how many circle jails are there? So there's, uh, I'm going to... Or so Ash roughly. Ashfield, Thameside, Loudham, Grange, Doncaster and Duggate. So there's five in England. Yeah. And one in Scotland. Okay. Uh, and he said, come and look at it. And that's where I started my, my love of, of saying, okay, I believe that the early days in custody for any individual is actually the most important time in, in their sentence. And for our listeners who might not know, mm. why is it such an important time? Because it's the first time somebody has been to a jail before. Um, it is when people are at the highest risk of self-harm or suicide. So there was 92 coffins that left our jails last year, self-inflicted. That's not the natural causes. That's 92 people that decided to take the final step. And I believe that we could have saved some of them. I genuinely do. And I think it's because people come off and they come into a jail and there's this noise which is like no other noise in the world there are people who they don't know um sat in a small room waiting to be processed and all they've seen is midnight express or the shawshank redemption and that's really all they know about jail and that's what the public knows about jail so i say that we need to deal with people especially at that time of their lives and not just for the first day, which is what many jails do, is they have this induction process. I hate the word induction. Yeah. That sounds like you're joining the army. Yeah. Um, and then they just say, okay, this is what you need to know about jail, and that's it, and we'll send you into the general population, and goodbye. And then somebody kills themselves, or somebody self-harms. You know, there was 68,500 incidents of self-harm in jail last year. How many? 68,500 right. incidents of self-harm in jail yeah. last year one every 14 minutes basically so i i said this is the most important time and for the jail as well it's the most important time 
because if you treat somebody wrongly in that time when they're first in front of you, you've then decided the type of person that you're going to have for the rest of their time with you. So I have this phrase that says, if you mug somebody off in reception, you've just decided that you're going to have a scallywag for the rest of his time. Because if you mug me off in reception, I will treat every other officer that wears the same in uniform as you as the same. So I won't trust you. I won't come to you for help. I won't ask you for help. So for me, it is the most important time. The first probably two months of being in custody is the most important time. We all talk about resettlement and reducing reoffending and, and all that sort of stuff. We don't talk about settlement that much. Mm. And that's what I do. So I started doing that with, with Wynn. And then I got a phone call from another fantastic human being called Jerry Petherick, who used to work for G4S. And he asked me to do the same. So it kind of has spread since then. And I, I don't know how to run a jail. And I do not want to know how to run a jail. Yeah. Um, I'm not a man that can do budgets. I'm a man who looks at people bleeding. Yeah. So I just spend my life now going in and out. And I'm, have they been particularly responsive? You know. Yes, they have. Ninety-two um, coffins leaving last year. You know, there's work to be done, isn't there? There's. Work. I know that's across the. That's whole entire state. state. Yeah, that's yeah. across 104 closed prisons. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I'd say 95% of them are receptive. There's always the bit of the sucking of the teeth when an ex-prisoner comes in and says, "I think I can do this." What do you think that's about? That's because I'm an ex-prisoner. Yeah, uh, so it's like, you can't tell me. Yeah, it's, it's ironic, because I hate the word ex-con, but if you look at my name as the Tartan Con, it's, yeah. The, yeah, uh, see what you do um, Yeah, <laughs> uh, so you do get that. Uh, but when you sit and talk to people one-to-one -one and say, listen, I'm not here to do your job. I'm just here to make your job easier. And so you can spend more time. I think most of the prison officers are the type of people that turn around and say, we want to try and help somebody. Yeah. So that's why I do it. So yeah, they're, they're receptive. So what were your early days in custody like then to make you so passionate about changing it for others? They were absolutely terrible. Um, you get off a, you, it's early days in custody starts at court. It doesn't start at the jail, it starts at court. So you get the send them down thing from the judge uh, and then you're taken into a holding cell which is eight by 10, if that. And you wait on average six or seven hours before you're told, okay, you're going to X prison. But you haven't seen your family because you can't see your family after you've been sentenced. That's it, you're done. After you've been remanded, you can't, your family can't come down to the court cells and say hello. Your lawyer can, but nobody else can. So then you get and the bus draws up to the gates and you look at, you think of porridge, of the gates of HMP Slade that was in porridge, wasn't mm. it? And you've got this thing, Norman Stanley Fletcher thing on the back of your head. Yeah. Uh, and then you get off the bus and you're shepherded in and you wait in reception for anywhere up to eight hours uh, before you're told, okay, now you're going to your first night centre, which is the biggest misnomer in the book because it's not a first night centre, but that's what they call it. If you're lucky, you get a phone call to your family to say, this is where I am and can you come and see me, please? If the staff are too busy, you don't get the phone call. If you're somebody like me, where the family lives abroad, you've got no chance. You won't speak to your family. And this is a weird question, but mm. you wouldn't have had your mobile phone on you because, of course, they're illegal in prison. So what if you don't know anyone's telephone number? They will give you the chance. I, I will give them this. They will actually say at that point, OK, you, they have your mobile. Oh, They'll okay. actually open it up for you okay. and go, OK, pick some numbers off that. Because you have to remember, you have to put a list of 20 phone numbers that you want to be able to call. OK. So they will, if they've got time, 
they will actually open up your mobile and say, okay, check these numbers. Yeah. So if you're lucky, you'll get the phone call. Then you'll go up to the first night center where you will be inundated with information. And then you're locked up for the night. Told that's it, you're, I'll see you tomorrow. So you're sitting on the end of a bed with somebody who you have no idea because you're always got somebody in your cell. And then you're opened up the next morning, you won't sleep because some prisons will do hourly checks to make sure you're still awake, which is a good thing to do, I suppose, or it's a really bad thing because if you've got the adrenaline level has gone down low, you're tired, mm. but the prison wakes you up every half hour. That seems like some kind of sort of cruel and unusual it, it is, torture. Yeah, it's you, like you, having a newborn baby. Yeah, just, <laughs> I, I, they'll put a torch through your window, you know, the slat on your door and, and ask you to move every single hour. And then you get up the next day and you get another filled full of information. And unfortunately, where it came to me is that um, I witnessed a young man sit on a landing and open up his stitches because he was so stressed. So my second day in jail, or my first full day in jail, I witnessed a man just bleed profusely on the landing and that was my induction into prison. Right. So that wasn't the nicest in the entire world. And that was staff not caring about the individual. The lack of empathy was what got me mm. initially, the lack of empathy of staff. I'm too busy to deal with this. Come back and see me later. Do you, you have know. some sympathy with that or not? None whatsoever. Absolutely none. There is no need for any staff member to be unsympathetic. None at all. I don't care how busy you are. It is really simple. When you walk into HMP, it says a duty of care. That's what's on the wall. So if you, if you don't care for that, then go and get a job that says, would you like fries with this? Because mm. that's all you're worth to me. You are there to take care of individuals. You're not there to inflict any punishment because we're sent to jail as a punishment, not to be punished. My punishment's my loss of liberty, nothing else. Mm. So don't treat me like something's on the bottom of your shoe. And the unfortunate thing is, there's a lot of people that do. Yeah. And you talked about withdrawing and sort of, you know, going into yourself. Yeah, I reverted into a shell, which was a shell that I didn't really know exist. My, my father, God love him, once said that I was introverted by nature, but extroverted by necessity. And I think that probably sums me up. Um, I'm never more at ease when I'm, than when I'm sitting on my own with nobody around me. That's where I feel at ease. But I took that to the nth degree in my sentence, about halfway through my sentence. Um, they timed me at four and a half minutes out of my cell a day uh, for over nine months. I didn't see outside a wing. I didn't breathe fresh air for just about a year. Mm. I stayed on the wing. I was going through some real severe mental health problems. It was part of the deconstruction stuff. I just didn't know what I was doing. I self-harmed in prison to the form of not eating. So it wasn't a physical thing that you could see. And that's what I think people think self-harm is. It's when somebody does something to themselves. Mm. That, you sort of initially thinks yeah, you're cutting wrists, yes. don't you? you that's Pops, exactly what we think of. To my mind. Um, so my self-harm was my BMI went to nine. I ate one piece of dry rivita a day for just over 60 days, I think that's what they said. So I was starving myself. Mm. I, I went through this weird thing of going, I'm not being punished enough. Right. So I thought I'd just punish myself. You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And because you had sort of withdrawn, did that mean you got less attention from the officers who then were dealing with the sort of people who were kicking off more or actually self-harming and bleeding more? And what would you sort of, you know, is there any way to reach people who withdraw like that who aren't sort of coming out of their cells and are sort of invisible, if you like? So the the problem everybody will tell you is because it's the lack of staff in prisons, so they don't have the time to spend with prisoners. And I think that's correct. I I think prison staff are, are far too filling out boxes and ticking boxes and stuff like that. So I would present fine. I would, you would look at me and go, okay, he's looking a bit skinny and there's a bit of bags under the eyes. Apart from that, he looks okay. Because I would present fine. I became the extrovert at that point going, no, I'm fine. There's no problem with me. Um, So they wouldn't look at me. They wouldn't just go, are you okay? No, no, I'm fine. Which I wasn't. I was on the point of suicide. so it, the staff just couldn't, they couldn't deal with me. They're dealing with 160 other prisoners that are kicking off. And those are the ones that get the attention and, and possibly quite rightly so. But my state of mind was I'd had enough. I was leaving the planet. I was, to quote Henry Blofeld, put my cue in the rack. I was gone. I decided that I had punished my wife enough. And that's the weird thing about somebody's head when they're, when they're in that position. I hate people that say suicide is a selfish act Mm. and it really rates me because I turn around and go, no, it's a selfless act. I genuinely thought that this world was going to be better off without me in it. So I was going to take myself out. So that's the issue that you have. So I did isolate. I isolated completely away from everybody else. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I sat and did some work, but it was paperwork. You know, it's people, things that didn't involve me having to deal with other human beings. And that's where I was content. I thought that's what I wanted. Yeah. Obviously it wasn't, but that's what I thought in my frame of mind at that point. And you said for the last couple of years, you've been working on something called the vulnerability tool. So tell me about that. So actually it came through uh, an amazing individual at one of the private organizations that had come up with this idea. And we had always said that um, if we could spot some triggers, that that would help the staff being able to talk to the prisoner. And that was the idea behind it. And 
you know, when somebody goes through the state of mind that I went through, you start canceling your canteen. You don't order anything from the prison shop. Well, why would you? Because you're on your way out. So why am I going to spend 40 pounds on the canteen mm. or 10 pounds on the canteen? Because I'm not going to be here to use it next week. And I'm not going to have any visits. I'm not going to book any visits. Well, why am I going to book any visits? Because I'm not going to be here. Um, I'm not going to bother going to work. Well, why would I need to go to work? Because I'm going out anyway. And these are all things that came around. And the the bods at Circle, the 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 intelligent people at Circle, <laughs> which is certainly not one of me, um, they decided this algorithm could be spotted and, and said, okay, if the canteen level goes below a certain amount, if the visits are cancelled, if there's no attendance at work, these are all triggers of People call it self-isolation. There's no such thing as self-isolation. It's isolation. Simple as that. But I think the, the way to say it is if somebody is self-isolating. So these things can be brought up and they can be watched. So there can be an amber alert. So if, uh, if somebody hasn't turned up for work for a couple of days, it's not necessarily going to be a red alert that we're going to sell all the alarm bells off. It'll be an amber one that says, just watch that. They've got this new system now called the key worker system, and OMIC yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And that's a great thing. So you get to speak to a prisoner for five or 10 minutes every single week and spend the rest of the time doing your paperwork. Well, these interactions are good, only as good as the content of the interaction. So the idea is, listen, George, I notice your canteen's gone a bit low. Are you okay? I notice you haven't ordered anything. Are you all right? Well, no, I've got a bit of an issue. There you go, there's the trigger. It's not to take away from the interaction of a prisoner or with a prisoner. It's not to take away the prison officer's job. It's a tool to assist the prison officer that says, yeah, I've watched this. I can tell you a wonderful story of an individual who had lost touch with his family for three and a half years. And he came up on this vulnerable prisoner tool in the prison and it came up, they'd had no visitors. So the key worker went to him and said, can I just ask why you haven't had any visitors? And he was convicted of a certain offense that meant his family didn't want to speak to him. And he said, well, I haven't seen my mum in three and a half years. So they went to him and said, and the, the key thing I wanted to hear was, what I wanted to hear was the, the truth. So the, the key worker went to him and said, listen, would you like to try and speak to your family? Can we contact the family for you? Um, well, I don't know. And what I wanted to make sure was if the family said no, that we told the prisoner the truth. And that, as a prisoner, is vitally important to me. But the support would have been there. So there would have been support if the family turned around. So he said, yes, that's, that, go ahead and do that. So they contacted the family and the mum said, oh, I didn't know where my son was. I've been trying to see him for three and a half years. Mm. So that's how this tool works for the good because he got a visit and he sat with his mum. And how many prisons is it in? At the moment, it's in six prisons in the country. Yeah. In um, every cell or is it in a few cells? It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be in a cell because it's tied in. You know the, the machines that they use, the CMS machines? I, I call the them, wing? Oh, yeah, I call them kiosks, like ATMs. Right, yeah, and they're dotted around the wings. Yeah, so that's where you order your canteen. It's, it's, you'd call it in-cell technology. Yeah. It's that sort of stuff. So it's actually written into that program. So it's not in a cell. It's okay. in your program. When you press the button on the CMS, yeah. we now know that's you. So you're ordering your canteen, so it's actually written into the program of CMS. Okay. So it's for absolutely everybody. And CMS stands for? Oh, something management system, custodial okay. management system. Okay. Because I was sort of thinking if you're someone who's withdrawn to the point you don't want to come out of your cell. Well, that would automatically flag up right. because he hasn't used the CMS machine to order his canteen okay. to book his and visits. And if they haven't used the CMS machine at all, 
then we so will you they'll have used it at some point yeah so part of my early days in custody process for the jails that use a cms machine is we teach them how to use it yeah so we spend an hour with them saying we'll order your canteen or we'll order your your meals for the week so that's how they do it they order it on the machine i like the cms the in-cell technology i think it's a great step so this is how we, so they will have used it at some point or another but even if they've never used it, I mean, this will automatically pick up going, he's not ever used this. Yeah. So let's go and see him. And it's called in-cell technology, but it's not in-cell, right? Some of it is. So okay. I think in Berwyn, they've got in-cell technology. They don't have a vulnerable prisoner tool. But in Thameside, for example, they have in-cell computers. Okay. Um, the rest of the jails have a kiosk. So everybody calls it in-cell technology. It's right. not, I'd rather call it wing technology, but that doesn't sound very good, I suppose. Sounds a bit like a sort of aeroplane yeah, it does, doesn't it? thing. Yeah, it does, not it? <laughs> So it's in the system. So it will automatically pick them up. And the thing about it is you can play with it and change it. So I was in one prison uh, earlier on in the week where they said, well, we've put it down if the guy doesn't attend the gym. But the problem is the system that they use in the gym is not the same system as they use on the wing. So we said, okay, take that out and put in visits if the guy doesn't have it. So it's kind of, it's, it's workable to every single jail. And that's what I love about it. And is there a plan to sort of roll it out further beyond yes, those I, six? Yes, it, it is. I, it's my wish to see it in every single jail in the country that's got in-cell technology. Um, that's not up to me, unfortunately, at the moment. No. That's up to my masters to say, okay. But th again, it comes back to, to the gentleman when that was telling me about who's openly said, this is not something just for Serco. So that's the difference on the private side. Where Eastern Red said, okay, Serco have devised it and helped devise it and all that sort of stuff. But this is for the better good. So yes, it's our kind of technology, but you know what? Come and talk to us and you can have it. Right. Which is what I like. Yeah. And there's often a debate, isn't there, about sort of public versus private prisons. And are private prisons better than public ones? And my answer to that is, well, you've got good private prisons and good public prisons and bad private prisons and, you know, so on and so forth. What's so I'm, your... I'm going to try not to swear here. I'm, going, I'm just <laughs> okay. looking at something. For your listeners, that. by the way, I'm, I'm, list, I'm looking at a wall because I'm trying not to swear. Okay, so here's the difference. I fully believe there's a need for private and public. I don't believe there's a monopoly needed for any one of them. Yes, you're 100% right. There are outstanding public prisons in this country, and there are some dreadful private prisons in this country. The government took one over last year, as you know, which was HMP Birmingham, which was such a bad jail that the government came back and went, you can't run this anymore, I'm going to take, I'm going to take it away. So I do believe there's a need for both. I hate the disparity between the two. I hate the looks I see sometimes when I speak at events with private staff there and public staff there and the public staff sneering at the private staff. Mm -hmm. I, that despise me. We, you're employed for the greater good. You're employed to take care of society's human beings. Whether you're private or public should make the difference. The difference on the private side is private jail, every private jail in this country is purpose-built as a private jail. They're newer. There's no Victorian private jails in this country. Yeah. They're all, so all of them have, the, I think every private cell or every private jail in the country now, I think I'm right in saying, has in cell, uh, telephones inside the cells. Right. So they are, are more than that. But as an organization, whether it be Serco, Sodexo, not as much G4S, but the other organizations, they're much more innovative. They can be more innovative. Because they have more money to spend? No, because the customer is HMPPS. It's a bit different 
The boss isn't HMPPS. Right. HMPPS is the customer to Circle, Sodexo and G4S. Yeah. So they can turn around and go, as long as we do the things that the customer needs us to do, we can do some funky things as well. So therefore, they're much more a case of bringing somebody let me in, going, there you go, go do your stuff and then tell us what, what it's like. They're more, yeah, just more innovative. Yeah. Isn't the sort of moral compass side of things a bit difficult to sort of come to terms with in the sense that I've always thought, you know, with private prisons, it's in their interest to have all their beds full. You know, they they profit off people being in their institutions. Yeah, that's an interesting argument. Um, certainly when I first thought about jails as uh, a citizen of the country, I thought, well, no, you can't have private companies run our jails. That belongs to the government, for goodness sake. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Well, we now realise that the government running things is probably not the best way to do things. <laughs> So you look at that and say, okay, so is it the standard line of it's prisoners for profit? So you're making money out of prisoners. Yeah, I'm sure that there are shareholders in these companies that want to make money. But I know probably of only less than 40% of the private jails actually make a profit. And what people don't understand, and I showed somebody this at Thameside Prison in London, where she was shocked to find out, yes, there was a certain amount of profit there, but it was stuck into something called the Common Good Fund for Prisoners. So it could only be spent if that money would benefit the prisoners. So what's the incentive then for a private company who ultimately, their ultimate aim is to make money, mm, absolutely. which is fair enough. Lots of organisations are set up because they want to make money. So what would be the incentive then for a company like Circle G4S to so run I think, prisons? I th it's not, is it altruistic? I think some of it is altruistic. I don't know because I don't know the ins and outs of every investor or every director inside Circle or G4S. Of circle on the pod. So you need to get ahead of <laughs> you need to go and contact Rupert Soames and ask him to come in and have a chat with you. Yeah. Um, what I have found is some of the differences in the private companies. So I won't name names, but there are some companies that will do things that are not necessarily beneficial to their shareholders, but beneficial to the prisoners. Now that is altruistic. Yeah, okay, this is going to cost us an extra X amount of money. But you know what? It's actually better for this. There are some of them that I'm sure will look at it and go, do you know what? I just want the land. I'm interested in the land. When the renewal for the contract comes up, I'll decide whether I'm going to cash out at that point because you know, I've got the land. So I'm making my return on my investment from the land. Um, it's, it, it's a strange subject. And it, it's one that annoys me greatly when you have certain people that will come and talk to you, for example, and say, the private prisons are the most dangerous prisons in the country. And I immediately turn around and bring up the compendium that says there's not one private jail that scored less than a three in the safety aspect in the country. So the private jails are safer than the public jails. Right. There is not a private jail in this country that's under an urgent notification notice. Not one. And they can get them even though they're private? They are inspected by HMIP exactly the same as the, as the public. HMP Birmingham did have an urgent notification and it belonged to G4S in that time. Yeah. So there isn't any of that. And that annoys me because it, you sit there, people sit there and go, well, private jails are terrible and they'll do that. And I, my answer is really simple. Take 10 of my fellow prisoners and say to them who are in the public estate right now, you can stay here or you can go to private jail. Which one are you going to go to? And I guarantee 10 out of 10 will turn around and say, I'll go to the private one, thank you. The likewise, the other way around, take 10 of my fellow prisoners in a private jail and say, you're going to the public estate and then wait and see what happens. I suggest you duck and run at that point. Right. They're known to be more innovative. They're known to be 
more caring. So the argument is, well, their budgets are bigger, they have more staff, the staff can be better paid. Is there something in that? No, I think the reverse is true. I think the public, the private estate pay less than the public estate. So I, I don't think there is anything in that one. I don't think it's, their budgets are bigger. No, they have a contract of which they have bid to the customer, HMPPS or MOJ, to say, we will run this jail for that amount of money. And the customer then makes a decision. In the old days, HMPPS used to have to bid for a jail as well. So we have a new jail being built in Wellingborough at the moment, where they've decided that it's going to be privately run. But in the old days, HMPPS could have bid for that at the same day, that, at the same time. That doesn't make sense to me because you're bidding for your own business. Hmm. But the example I'll give you is we talk about Birmingham, where the, the HMPPS bid for initially for Birmingham, along with G4S. And HMPPS and the POA, the Prison Officers Association, bid for lesser amount of money and lesser staff. Yet G4S still got the contract and they were more expensive and had more staff. So there's there, there's the moral compass. And I'm not saying that the private estate is the best estate in the entire world. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you need both. Yeah. I've never been resident in a private jail as a prisoner. Right. I've always been in a public estate and I, I'm breathing today because of public prison officers that saved my life. So you won't find a stronger supporter of the public estate. You also won't find a stronger detractor from the public or private estate when they do something wrong, such as deaths in custody or something like that. Do the officers in the private prisons get trained better or for longer? Do you know? No, I don't think they do. I think it's the same. Right. Um, I think I'd be right in saying that the training program, which is ITC, Introduction to to, to custody um, is exactly the same program that's run in the private state as it is in the public estate. Uh, and they cannot deviate from that. So the G4S's, the circles and the SEDEX of the world can't turn around and go, would like to give you this as part of your training as well. I think it's the same. It's woefully low. Don't get me wrong. It's mm. you know nine weeks and you can become a prison officer. Yeah. It should be nine years before you can become a, a prison officer. Absolutely. You know, and 22 years old prison officers. Is not the way forward in my eyes. The frontal cortex of your brain doesn't finish developing until you're 25, for goodness sake. Yeah. And that's the decision-making part of your brain. And you're going to put somebody in like that into a jail who's 22. Nah, that's not going to work. No, not in the, the days where we are, at no. the minutes where the system is more violent than it's It's terribly been. violent. It's, it is horrendously violent. So what, what does 2020 look like for you? What are your big things that you'd like to see changed by the time... You sort of wrap things up. And yeah, we were saying that You earlier. had your magic wands. Oh, if I had my magic wands. So, many, I'm so not, many things to change. I'm but. not an abolitionist. I believe there's need for jails. I believe we jail people for the stupidest reasons in the entire world. I've met one of the ladies in a female prison who was jailed for the not payment of the fine for the television license and was given 28 oh, yes. days. <laughs> um, 28 days. 28 days. Mm. And it was over a bank holiday, so she actually only served 11. But right. it's good because we've yeah, given really her good use of time and money, I'd say. Perfect because yeah. we've given her a criminal record, so she'll never be able to do anything again in her life. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wish I could take a magic wand and, and do what, everything I want to do with prisons, and I can't. So I've got a year and a half left before I'm going to retire. My thing will always be what it has been in the past, Edwina. I want to stop or stem the flow of coffins. So safer custody for me, reduce the self-harm, reduce the suicides. And it's not as easy as just saying, we're going to reduce it. We have to find the root cause of why people are doing this. And that's a big 
that's a deeper thing. Um, we have to find the reason why somebody is self-harming. Not just because, and usually it's not because he's canteen short or, he, or he's 20 minutes late for his visit. That's not the reason why somebody's doing this. So we have to find that and that's what I want to work with. I want to work on settling people into prison. Uh, and I, I, as much as I don't necessarily want to, I will come out the woodwork a lot more next year and be a thorn in the side of certain people and certain organizations to shout and scream at them and say, you're doing this wrong. And this isn't, what I do for a living is not rocket science. It genuinely isn't. I'm honored by able to sit in the cell with a prisoner for him to tell me what's wrong. And that's what it's all about. It's the contact. It's by saying, okay, what exactly is going on? And I'll continue to go in and out of these jails and talk to these lost souls and say to them, yeah, I'm just going to try and make it slightly easier for you. And that's what I'll do for the next 15 or 16 months. So you're going to go out with a bang? Oh, I'm going to go out with a bang. <laughs> in the hope that, so when I do leave, somebody will then look at the next person behind me and go, well, thank God it's not the Tartan Con, so we'll give this guy a voice. <laughs> because they won't give me a voice. So I'm quite happy with that. If somebody behind me gets to be able to sit in the powers of corridor, or corridor of powers rather, and, and say, we can start making a change. Mm, well, here's to hoping. Here's to hoping. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.